You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best informed, most read website focusing on the green energy transition and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. Hello and welcome to another Switched On Australia podcast. I'm Anne Delaney. The pressure on states to ban new gas connections and phase out existing gas is growing. As you've no doubt heard, Victoria, the largest user of residential gas, recently announced it will ban new connections from January 2024. The ACT was the first to announce bans on new builds that will come into effect in November. And existing connections will be phased out in the ACT by 2045. The gas industry has, unsurprisingly, opposed the move. But in Western Australia, it's a gas company that has made the decision to cut the gas network to a regional community on the south coast. That's not just new builds, but all existing connections. They made a business decision that it was no longer viable for them to continue supplying gas to the town of Esperance. The government was able to broker a deal to keep the gas pipeline open for a year while the town transitioned off gas. And at the end of March this year, the gas stopped flowing. 75% of the 400 households and businesses in Esperance that were connected to gas have now transitioned to all-electric appliances. The others are connected to bottle gas. The job of transitioning the community was left to the state-owned utility company, which services remote and regional communities, Horizon Power. The CEO of Horizon Power is Stephanie Unwin. Stephanie Unwin, thanks very much for joining the Switched On podcast. My pleasure. Can you start by painting a bit of a picture of Esperance for those of us who don't know the area? Where, where is it and what sort of a community is it? Yeah, so Esperance is uh, down south, as we call it. So it's about 720 kilometres southeast of Perth. And it's a seaside community, but it also has a lot of um, agriculture. It's a typically agriculture town, but also responds really strongly to some of the emerging um, minerals areas and um, has a really strong local Indigenous population as well, the Esperance Dalirak, um, who are very proud cultural owners. Yeah, so an interesting town and it's got got probably about 10 to 12,000 residents who live there. Okay. And so what what was the nature of the community's energy sources up until very recently? What and what was gas primarily used for? Yeah, so look, up until really recently, the um, energy mix in Esperance was predominantly gas and it came from a distributed or um, a, a pipeline. And that pipeline then had a distribution network that went out to a bunch of customers. And what happened a couple of years ago is that we started to look at that energy system with a view to transition it to cleaner, greener, to try and expand the footprint of wind to ensure we brought solar online and that we only then use gas as the fill-in source of fuel. And what that meant was that the economics for the owner of that gas distribution network company were fundamentally changed because it was not the winner in the contract to supply gas into that mix going forward. 
Just going back to the response of the the community when it was first announced that the the gas pipeline would be stopping, mm. what was the response of the community? Because I presume there were some concerns about yep. what was going to yep. happen. Yeah, and you know, imagine you know the scenario yourself if you're used to your gas hot plates, your gas heating, your gas your hot gas water. Your gas cooktop. <laughs> Ga- yep, exactly. Imagine, um, and I know how I would feel if I was told, look, I won't be able to have gas. Um, going forward. And so, yes, there was legitimate and uh, quite widespread concern in the community that something that's very important to it, that it relies on for its quality of life and businesses, would would no longer be there. And that we had a deadline. We we managed to secure one year um, in order to change that scenario for everybody and give them a good solution. But yes, there was genuine concern in the community. And you know, I recall going down to community events to, you know, discuss it with the community head on. Yes, we've got an issue, but we're here to make sure we provide you all with a good outcome and you will get an energy solution within the year and stay with us because we're creating the process now to get that done. So I, I feel like over the course of a number of engagements, um, the community took comfort from the fact that we were there standing beside them as a government-owned utility where the government had assured that it would provide a funding package for this to go ahead. And I feel that some comfort was taken from that. And then they allowed us, therefore, to have the breathing space to quickly come up with a good process to then engage in, all right, what does this look like for me? Mm. So how how crucial do you think in the transition was the money? Yeah, yeah very. Because people, w- <laughs> um, yeah, they would have had to buy new appliances to replace their gas appliances. Uh, yeah, so absolutely. And, you know, in this case, our state government said, look, we're not going to leave you without an energy solution. So we're going to stand behind that and we will fund um, all affected customers to make sure that um, they would have an alternative to the gas that was on at the moment, and that that uh, was backed, you know, by a, in a let's call it like for like mm-hmm. replacement, which said, if you've got an appliance of, you know, you've got a cooktop, you get a cooktop that that um, is hopefully that you know either the same the same brand but the same configuration, and I think customers took real comfort that they weren't being left high and dry and having to come up with the money to to support that change as well. So you were you weren't just paying subsidies. You you were actually paying a, a, a direct fee for people to replace their appliances. Yeah. So we we direct paid the trades, for example. So um, the way that it worked for our residential customers is that they um, had their you know equipment needs assessed, and then we had a very simple process that enabled them to select the like for like appliances and engage the trades, but we would then direct pay the trades to make sure that no one was left um, with, you know, the I guess the, the hassle of having to make sure that people were paid and followed up on. So we did that part of the equation, which worked extremely well for the trades. So from the trades perspective, we had weekly personalised schedules for them that said where in the stage all of their customers were at who had selected them to do the work. And then we made sure they were paid on a very short cycle. So it was great business actually for the trades that worked with us because they didn't have the hassle of having to follow up people for payment. Mm. Uh, one of the issues, certainly in a lot of areas in Australia, is actually getting trades to do this kind of work, yes. and especially yep. to electrify. How difficult was it yeah. for you to get the trades to do the work? 
So we certainly saw that as a critical issue in the success of the transition in the time frame that we had. So we had exactly one year and we went to great lengths to make sure that we had um, local trades involved. In fact, my recollection is about 88% of all of the uh, work went to local trades. And we also had one additional trade that came from Perth as a supplementary to make sure that the work was done on time. But it was really pleasing. And I went down personally to meet um, one of the local gas fitters and one of the local electrician companies. And it was just so pleasing to see great local businesses getting supported. But we also made sure from Horizon's perspective that we went through the competency work, you know, making sure they were qualified, they did their work to a really great safe standard um, and that they had all of the necessary insurances. So we took all of that headache away from 400 individuals. We made sure that we coordinated that. And we also found too that there was great trust in the local trades and that our customers at the end of it made a lot of their decisions based on the information the local trades gave them. So a really important part was also helping those local trades be educated in these new things like heat pumps and, mm. um, you know, the induction cooktops and the like. That issue of trust is, it seems to yep. me to be so fundamental in a transition like this. You know, we mm. take the advice of the tradies. So the, the education of tradies, you must have had to have done all of that really fast and, yeah. and got the staff on board. Yeah, and you know, something else that we also, so we, we created a dedicated project team who in effect relocated to Esperance for probably about seven months of this project. Um, thinking through that, the first few months were actually set up customer centered design, getting all of the, um, you know, the mechanics in place up front. But then once we got to, dealing with customers, it was self-evident very quickly that it had to be one-on-one -on -one personal. You've got to walk people through the process and mm. really engage really deeply. But that education and trust was key. And what we noticed was that when we bought, we bought a celebrity chef from Perth down to Esperance to do a cooking demonstration on induction. And really interestingly, after we did that, we had quite a spike in customers saying, oh, I get this thing now. That looks really cool. I'd actually like to go with induction. So education that's, was key. That's really interesting because they, they, the suggestion is now that the cooktop is the, is the gateway decision for a lot of people yeah. to get off gas. Yeah. And you know, the other great part about this, and I, I hope we'll be able to come out with data over time, but obviously we've got to get people to say yes to sharing it because it's confidential and private to them. But we're also really convinced that there'll be quite decent energy savings on their bills from going to electric outcomes rather than gas. And because in some they're more cases, efficient, energy yeah, efficient. Yeah, and um, so it's cheaper overall if your heating and cooling is done through electric appliances for most uh, most residential customers. So I'm looking forward to trying to get data probably over the next year that backs that assertion up. But anecdotally, I'm told people are better off already. And it's and it's a reasonable amount. So when you think about cost of living pressures now, how great that out mm -hmm. of adversity, you know, having something taken away from you, you actually get great new appliances that are efficient, but get more more share of mm. wallet, you know, to go mm. and spend back in, bang for your buck. in the town. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's what we're all about. Vibrant communities and um, helping communities feel that they're really supported. So there was a great outcome as well in terms of uh, more money in your own hip pocket. And is that the feedback that you're getting from the community yeah. now yeah. about so the cost, the it, cost savings? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and we, we engage regularly with a bunch of customers and um, I've got to go and um, meet a couple who were initially quite opposed to this idea and um, were really upset about the impact on them, who are now really, really happy with the solutions they've got, but also are starting to feel um, that they're getting savings. So it has been pretty nice from that perspective. Were there certain sections of the community that were more difficult to transition off the gas into the new appliances? I was in particular thinking about landlords with property investments. Yeah, was yeah. there any reluctance there? Well, look, um, whether it was reluctance or just hard to contact people. So um, from a privacy perspective, you can't just get a database of every customer that's effective, affected. So we had to spend quite a lot of the upfront time actually just identifying who was at the end of this distribution network. And so landlords are often um, absent. They're not in the, in the town. So they're not coming down to mm. see community events or local notice boards and the like. And trying to identify every customer who was affected took us quite some time. But once we were able to maintain or to get contact, I think there was also a bit of a burning platform here. We only had a year. We made it really clear mm. there were no extensions. So it was absolutely critical that every household who was affected got to transition on their terms and with their choices. So what, what we probably found the bigger issue was in the business sector, not every customer could transition to electric and they a number had to stay much higher proportion, had to stay with like an LPG, so um, bottled gas. And um, what were the reasons there? So a couple, some of it was, for example, because their appliances, so say um, big grain drying businesses rely heavily on um, gas to get the, the heat and mm. also laundromats and things who are supporting, you know, hotel washing and the like. The, the appliances that you need in those sorts of businesses are not yet electric in the way that is efficient and they need to come out. So what we'll see over the next, I guess, five or so years is much more... Or less, more, actually. Yeah, well, or less, less, depending on the... It, it's all... Sometimes, though, it is up to the manufacturer of those appliances in those industries to be leading the charge. Um, and we're, we're takers of their products. I think the other part, too, that was interesting is that um, some of the infrastructure upgrades just couldn't be done in the time frame we had left. Mm. And... For those businesses, they've had to go with an LPG outcome and that's probably where they'll stay. But we had, of the resi customers, 75% chose to go to a fully electric alternative, which is really high. When you actually think about it, you, the announcement was made, in, what, in September 2021 and you've delivered this March 2023. That's yep. not long, really, is it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, and, and bear this in mind, you see that there is a, a lot of interest in um, reducing reliance on gas and entire, uh, you know, states or uh, communities are talking about getting out of gas by a date. Now, we, as I said to you, we had a year to get this in place. That is not a lot of time. And we had 400 odd customers to transition. So when mm. you're starting to talk multiples of that and very significant multiples, you cannot underestimate the difficulty from a logistics perspective. Mm. 
So looking at how this can be a bit of a, a pilot for other communities in Australia, is that going to be an, an, an issue when, when the communities get bigger and more and more people have to transition? I presume that's just going to slow everything down and make it much more difficult. You definitely need uh, an end date in mind. Um, I'd be thinking about two things. Firstly, that if it is the desire of a community to um, not have gas from a date, then they also need to stop investing in new gas um, at mm. this point in time. So, for example, for new builds, you might want to go completely electric if that's their policy desire. The second part is you do need an end date in order to help people through the transition and you need a very clear process that has been funded or people understand the pathway to being funded that enables there to get there. If you don't have those elements in place, I think it's gonna be very difficult to get to a fully transitioned economy um, or a community. And you're absolutely going to need to make sure you've got all of the elements of human-centered design, you've got a clear process, you've got good trades lined up, you're able to schedule and help with the logistics of energy audits, appliance selection, and um, just the, you know, the logistics in getting a new electrical connection put in, the gas uh, line made safe, for example. So there's a lot that goes into this transition and you just cannot underestimate how important it is to engage really deeply with your community about why we need to change and mm. what's involved in that change, but making it really easy to get there. We need a plan. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it sounds yeah. like. And, you know, I, I've seen some great products too. If you think about the savings that customers can make, so there's a, a you know a financial incentive to change, then there is some great ideas coming out of the East Coast, for example, where you, in effect, use the savings on a customer's bill to pay for the capital cost over time. Uh, look, my understanding is that Horizon is a combined generator, retailer, distributor of yes. energy, yep. whereas in in most other areas of Australia, those roles are, are actually separated. Yeah, yeah. So we're fully we're a fully vertically integrated. Um, business, which also makes it quite easy. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was going to yeah. ask. Do you think that that has made it easier to do what you've done, to transition in the way that you've done off the gas and not more onto the electricity because of that in Esperance? Yeah, look, we certainly have the benefit of, for example, there are always network issues that go with increased load on your network. Mm. And for us, working that answer through is really simple when you go to just another part of your business. This is a fairly, this is fairly much part of at the retail end. So it is very much at the retail end, uh, but it certainly helps when you're vertically integrated because you're able to provide network answers to retail customers. Tell me what's going to happen to the gas pipelines now? Will the gas company be paying for the removal? Look, that look, that's a matter for the um, Esperance Gas Company. So um, it it's, no doubt that they've got licence conditions and they have their own plans. So I'm not sure what they're proposing to do with that going forward, but that will be a matter for them as to, you know, what's next for it. There are concerns about uh, disconnecting from gas, but leaving the pipelines there. There's mm. concerns about safety and, and gas build up in the pipelines, etc. Surely the government needs to be considering some of those issues to encourage the, the gas company to do something about it? Look, I understand there are really clear licence conditions about making safe, and I'm sure that the regulators will be looking at 
the company to make sure it honours its its obligations there. So, Stephanie, tell me, how much did it all cost to to pull off this transition? Look, it was about just over $10 million was involved across the business and residential customers. And that was that was about, you know, as I said, around 400 properties that were affected, um, some more than others, depending on the nature of their issues. So it was about $10 million for the 400 properties. You're listening to the Switched On Australia podcast and my guest today is Stephanie Unwin, the CEO of Horizon Power in Western Australia. And we're talking about how the town of Esperance on the south coast of WA has transitioned off gas in just one year after the local gas distribution company decided to pull out. But although the Esperance community has pretty much transitioned off network gas, the electricity grid that the town is serviced by is only 50% decarbonised. The other 50% is still powered by gas turbines. For us, it was the case of really strongly wanting to you know, pursue a great outcome for Esperance that was significantly higher in renewables than it currently had or it had at the time. And that meant that we still needed gas. So we were really trying for about a 50-50 outcome because the decision was made probably three and a half years ago now. We'd probably be at 80% if we made that decision today based on advances in um, our microgrids, mm. but at the time about 50-50. So certainly there was still a need for gas, but we you know, had commercial negotiations that were competitive with a bunch of parties and this party was not successful. Right. So what does the energy profile in Esperance look like today? Yeah, so today it is 50-50. So we have a lot of rooftop solar. So the mums and dads and small businesses are contributing to the energy mix. We have our own wind farm and we have a solar farm. And then we also have backup gas generation. And we have a couple of batteries that also provide, you know, the usual sort of frequency support and dealing with a, a whole bunch of, you know, tricky system issues that happen when large loads come on quickly um, as happens from the Esperance port, but also when wind drops off quickly or a cloud cover comes across and you're dealing with solar, they're not generating into the mix. So as I said, it's about 50-50 now and 50% comes from renewable, a combination of wind and solar, and then the rest comes from gas. You did, though, fairly recently start a new gas plant to provide energy for the microgrid that services Esperance. Why, why did you do that? Well, that, yes, yeah, so that was part of our 50-50 mix. So when we made the decision, you know, three and a half years ago to proceed with a much stronger renewables um, solution for Esperance, we still need backup. So we have days in Esperance where there is, um, you know, significant cloud cover. So the solar farm doesn't work. And we also have days when the wind isn't generating when we need it to or isn't generating because it's a really still day. So we still have this issue, as we do in mm. all of our um, energy systems, about how you make green energy firm and how you provide for deep storage. Three and a half years ago, we didn't have sufficient answers for Esperance at a capital cost that was bearable in order to go you know, a stronger renewable uh, proportion. We would like to expand that over time, though. To my mind, we can get to 80 to 90% now quite cost effectively, but we've still got to solve deep storage, as we call it. And that's quite different, you know, as your you know, community would know or the, um, the audience would know. It's quite hard with lithium-ion batteries. It's not really their job. Their job is short, short-term um, storage that sort of helps the system hang together. 
but we don't really have great answers yet in the longer duration storage. We probably need more vanadium flow kind of battery deployments, need to look at things like concentrated solar thermal, um, maybe hydrogen, you know, as a, as a storage mechanism. So at that time, we kept gas at about the 50-50 level, so we can get that nice mix of when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. But everything's changed, even in those last three mm. years since you made this yeah. decision, hasn't it? So Yeah, look, you... it has. Yeah, we can definitely get to, we think about 80-20 now, and... And what I'd love to see, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's a passion of mine, is that we keep investing strongly in the development of our storage technologies. And there's no one answer. Mm. So, you know, lithium ion is good for particular use cases, but that kind of, you know, more than six to eight hours over days, over weeks, you do need something else, this thing that we call deep storage. And there's going to be a range of technologies that still, you know, they're known, but they're probably not at commercial deployment stage yet that need to come into the mix to really get those systems up to a very reliable 80 plus percent. So just a final question. If you did it all again, how would you manage things differently next time? You know, it's quite interesting. Normally you have really strong lessons learned. This one, I'm so proud of our team because we went in, really consciously with a community first, customer-centered design process that really sought to engage with our local communities and our local trades. And I think that that has actually been the reason this project was so successful. I think we had all but three or four customers able to transition in time. And the ones that didn't chose for either appliance reasons or business reasons not to, and I think with like 94% of our customers said they were really satisfied with the process. I actually can't think of an area that we would have done differently. You know, in, in some customers' cases, we engaged over like 25 times to make sure they knew of the issue, were aware of all the steps they had to take, and then um, it was up to them to then work out what to do. But our project team did the most extraordinary job and they're so invested in the community that I would say there's not much I would do differently here. Are there um, companies and communities on the East Coast who are consulting with you to, to know how you did it? Look, we're certainly seeing a lot of interest from the other, at, at the ministerial level, as each, as each community or state is thinking about what's its stance on the energy transition, a number are looking at electrification and what electrification might mean for them. We've certainly been asked to speak on this topic um, either through our minister or in other forums quite regularly. And it looks like there's a lot of interest in how we did it and the lessons that we learned uh, because that's a very clear issue that is being thought about by the policy makers at this point in time. Well, it's going to be interesting maybe to have you back later on in the year and to, to see how things are actually going in Esperance. Yeah, well, we'd love to share the story because it's such a blueprint, isn't it, for it is. electrification and this, this amazing transition that we're all grappling with. Absolutely. Stephanie Unwin, thanks so much for joining the Switched On podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And Stephanie Unwin is the CEO of Horizon Power, the state-owned energy utility company in Western Australia that services remote and regional communities. That's it for today's Switched On podcast. Next time, I'll be talking to Alison Reeve from the Grattan Institute about their Getting Off Gas report. 
One of its recommendations was that states should ban new gas connections in homes and businesses. And that's just what the Victorian government has recently announced it will be doing in January next year. I hope you can join me then. Till then, I'm Anne Delaney. Keep electrifying. <laughs>